HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about a specific period in culinary history, in history. And that is the period from 1870 to 1930. It was a period rife with social and economic upheaval and change, and certainly waves and waves of immigrants, which we'll hear about shortly, uh, were coming into our country, and they were changing life as we know it, and certainly as they knew it. It's all about the working class of the turn of the century. And my guest today is Catherine Leonard Turner, who is a historian and author of a fascinating book called How the Other Half Ate, A History of Working Class Meals at the Turn of the Century, published by University of California Press. She's currently uh, teaching history at two different Philadelphia area colleges, the University of Delaware and Rowan University. And I, I have to say that there, this small sliver of a book is packed with so much wonderful information. I could easily do three shows on it or four, but, uh, but I, I have, I, what I would like to do is sort of set the stage for you because a lot of people aren't aware of what the working class ate, hence the book, and government officials and whoever, nutritionists or observers of, of our public over the centuries, they were the ones who shaped the public dialogue, as Catherine says, about food and influenced how we think about food and poverty. And I quote from her book, but the individuals solved the problems for themselves in a multitude of ways that shaped our country and the foods we eat forever. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. 
Um, this book, How the Other Half Ate, I, I have to say, just piqued my interest from the very first that I heard about it, and it's and it's been several months, um, I must admit, since I've um, been able to slot you into the show, and I'm uh, thrilled that you're here. Tell me, what? why did you choose this particular topic? Now, I understand that years ago this was, in fact, part of your, your uh, Ph.D. dissertation, correct? Yes, yes. Um, I always had an interest in... Um, food and industrialization. I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on canned food. And the most interesting part of studying canned food in, in this same time period was the, um, you know, the advertising message that canned food manufacturers had, that this is the housewife's paradise and you know, <laughs> everything can be had out of its season and then this can of peaches will change your life, you know, and very overblown advertising language. But also they promised that it would make cooking easy. You know, that you could, instead of making spaghetti, you could just open the can of SpaghettiOs. And I was just very interested by this idea of how industrialization changed actual cooking processes. You know, how, does, how do we cook differently because of industrialization? Because, of course, it's changed everything, but not, you know, quite in the way that advertisers, you know, would, would make it out to be. Correct. Right. And as I, and as I began researching, um, I found out more about these uh, progressive era women who are so interested in the problem of uh, working class and poor people's food. This struck progressives as a really solvable problem. You know, they're very positivistic, and they think, well, if people are poor, if they're hungry, it's because they're not, you know, they can be taught to eat better. We can solve this problem with education um, and possibly with legislation. And as I, you know, read more into it, I thought, well, nobody really knows what exactly working class people were eating and how they were cooking. You know, we know how they were being told not to cook and, and, you know, the prescriptive angle, but there wasn't much actual information about what people really did eat and, and more to my interest, how they thought about their own cooking. Right. Well, and now we're, we talk about the working class but um, from this period, but why don't we back up a little bit and identify, like, who were these people? Um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, these were very largely immigrants because of the just massive waves of immigration from southern and central and eastern Europe that was coming at this time. In some American cities in the, between 1890 and 1910, something like 50 to 75 percent of the population at any given time were immigrants or the children of immigrants. Wow. So we're talking about most of the people in cities were recently arrived. Right. And then, of course, you had um, a, a, another large movement of people from the countryside, people who are moving from America's rural areas into cities to take up industrial work. So the, the, the working class in cities were, frankly, a lot of people who were new to, you know, industrialization, new to these um, cities. And so they kind of have their own process of adjusting. You know, when you move to a new country, how do you find out where to get the kind of food that you recognize? How do you um, set up your kitchen? If you've always cooked a certain way, but you just can't do that anymore, what do you do? Um, and it's essentially any, you know, working class people from the definition of the times, anybody who does uh, heavy and dirty work, you know, not right. the, the the clerks and the people who can keep clean on the job are not part of the working class at this time. Right. Well, it's interesting because it, it for culinary historians, um, it, it's always been a challenge to to find out about the ordinary people's diets, even you know back in the in medieval Renaissance, or certainly let's not even talk about you know ancient Roman periods. <laughs> you know, we all know about the royal banquets and and the wonderful feasts, but you know who wants to hear about the yeoman's diet, right? Um, sure. So yeah. what what challenges did you meet um, in researching this material? 
Well, exactly that. As you say, the sources just aren't there. You know, working class people um, didn't read and write the magazines that are such a great source of information on middle class people at this time. They're just not in them. Um, they're reading and writing their own newspapers, um, but unfortunately, I don't speak a lot of, you know, speak any other languages than English, so that's a source that I couldn't use. They don't read or write um, a lot of cookbooks either. Right. You know, a lot of people would think, oh, you study culinary history, you're going to look at cookbooks. But the people I'm, I'm looking at have an oral tradition of cooking. They, don't, they just don't write things down very much, and certainly not in published cookbooks. Hmm. Interesting. And so I end up having to study them very often through the eyes of, of other people, of outsiders who are trying to reform them or count them or tabulate them or, you know, quantify them in some way. Right. So my sources, a lot of my sources, I have a, a, an issue of bias and I'm sort of trying to read between the lines. And I would imagine it was, it was probably a lot easier to, um, to find out about the urban dwellers than it was the, the rural dwellers. You, you had mentioned somewhere in your book that, um, that a lot of the uh, information that is available was biased towards urban as opposed to rural and to northerners as opposed to southerners. Certainly, yeah, and that that kind of tracks on, you know, the people who are interested in this. Although since I've since I've written the book, I really feel bad about not working harder to include West Coast sources. I'm from California myself, and of oh. course now when you know once the book's in print, I think, oh, I could, I really should have included these people in L.A. more. Um, but yeah, I mainly went where the sources were, and so that meant um, northeastern industrial cities. Um, and the reason I was able to have a chapter on um, rural industrial workers is that they also were the subject of government inquiry. Ah, yes. You know, because these America coal miners eats. or textile right. mill workers were known to be living under um, very bad circumstances, so there was investigations done. Right. Well, let's talk about Habad. Now, you mentioned that an extremely high percentage of the working class budget overall went for food. Yes, yes. Between 40 and 60 percent wow. was sort of the average um, among people, and that was it was it was almost that high even for people who produced some of their own food. You know, I have records of um, Pennsylvania coal mining families, and even though they have large gardens, they're still spending forty percent. You know, so they they can cut it down somewhat, but not not too much. Right, and if they weren't it's certainly keeping, very different from today. And you gave a, a prime example, and that was I think the price of eggs. Right, eggs were eggs were really seasonal. This is something I didn't realize before I started working that. And this is obvious to people who own, you know, keep chickens now, but chickens don't lay year-round. They lay when they want to, and they lay more in the spring and the summer. They don't lay in the winter. They don't lay when it's dark and cold. So eggs have a seasonal, and eggs can be kept over somewhat even before cold storage. You know, you can, there are ways to keep eggs, but it affects the price quite a bit. So people just couldn't, there were times of year when the eggs were just not in the budget. Mm-hmm. And even when they were available, there probably were a, a high percentage of that budget as well. Yeah, yeah. Eggs were cheap, but they weren't, you know, I think they were probably still cheaper than meat, mm. um, but not by much. Well, that was one benefit of, of for the immigrant population is that there was an abundance of meat during this period in America. But There was, yeah. Yeah, but talk about their living quarters. I mean, where did they, how could they cook? Where did they cook? You know, it's one of those things that, you know, I don't want to say, oh, it was impossible for them to cook in these circumstances, because, of course, people are tremendously resourceful, and, and people can do almost anything they need to do. But certainly working-class people's cooking um, facilities 
were much, much behind compared to middle-class people this time. You know, when middle-class people have gas stoves, working-class people are still using wood and coal-burning stoves. And a wood and coal-burning stove, you know, you can't just turn it on and off. When you want to use it, you have to heat it up, and then it's hot for an hour or two at least, you know, until you're, when you're finished cooking. And so it's heating up the whole room, which might be nice in winter but terrible in summer. <laughs> and, of course, you have to, you know, buy and haul in that fuel, and then you have to haul out the ashes, and it's a lot of um, – just a lot of upkeep and maintenance just to run a coal stove. Right. Um, and their kitchens are not separate from their homes, and that's another big difference for middle-class people, that middle-class people really – Middle-class, you know, Victorian Americans, upper-class, really like to keep their areas in their homes separate. You know, if you've seen a Victorian home, all the rooms are closed off from each other, partly to keep the heat in, but also because they just consider that appropriate, that you shouldn't be smelling what's cooking in the kitchen when you're sitting in the parlor. Right. And you shouldn't be hearing, you know, a noise from one room and the other. And so they really like to compartmentalize their their living, and they thought that was appropriate, especially because the kitchen is dirty, it's smelly, and it's where servants work. You know, it's kind of a, a not quite a family space. Whereas middle class, working class people this time, you know, they're living in two rooms. They don't have the luxury of dividing their space, so they're living, you know, everything sort of on top of itself. It means the kitchen is, is just the room where you do cooking and also where you might do piecework and where people might sleep at night and, you know, where you're storing things and, and everything's just done all at once. Right. So after all these people were out working probably in factories or something all day, they would come home and, and then, as you say, do piecework, take on other, other work that, you know, sewing or lace making, what, or, you know, uh, things that they could do in the home, as you say, in the, in the kitchen, the main room, right? Yeah, and, and those very were, often women who had small children to take care of would, would take on piecework, but the piecework rates are so low that they would really have to work 10 and 12 and 15-hour days just to, you know, make enough. Um, and so the, the cooking has to sort of happen, you know, in the, in, the, in the bits of time when you're not doing piecework. Right, and as you mentioned, children. So this was a big, this was a big era of children getting into the workforce. Yes, that's a that's an easy way if you live in a city to put your children to work in a relatively safe way is to have them do piecework at home. Right. Well, and also it you know knowing um, the tenements that a lot of these working class people in the urban areas lived in, some of them didn't even well they had a kitchen, but it was they didn't have a stove. I mean they would do there would be a communal stove. They'd have to share the areas where they would cook. That would affect. They did, them, right? and and um, urban people actually had a lot of sort of transitional forms of stoves that I found out because, you know, the limitations of a giant coal range are, are pretty obvious, and so they're looking for something uh, more convenient, maybe more portable that they can take from, you know, home to home with them. And so a lot of people in the uh, after about 1900 have these little, almost like a gas hot plate or like a little um, thing that sat on top of the coal stove. You can see them in, in photographs taken by Lewis Hine when he's, taking pictures of piecework and children working, but he's also taking a picture of the, the little gas burner arrangement on top of the stove. Right. And actually, I, I read a lot of fascinating reports about different kinds of stove. People were using kerosene stoves, and they actually there was a, a short period of time where people were using gasoline stoves. Wow. Like actually burning gasoline, which is a terrible idea for a stove. <laughs> it's really not safe at all. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's an, and but, you know, any, anything to, to try to make it less hot in the room and maybe use a cheaper fuel or make it more portable. Right. And, and for listeners who um, perhaps aren't aware, Lewis Hine um, lived during this period, and he was an incredible photographer, and he chronicled uh, the child labor uh, laws by, by taking pictures of child laborers, correct? I mean, he much of his work yes. is in the Library of Congress, I, that I, I do know, yeah. Yes. And it's it's been a terrific source for me because he took so many pictures of interiors, you know, of homes that would would otherwise have never been photographed. He went in there and took a picture. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it's, you know, during this period, it was the age old problem. Um, They spend too much on food of poor nutritional value. Hmm. What's changed, right? That we (laughs) we have similar problems in, in a lot of our poverty stricken areas today. So the poor, sure. so the, what would they buy? So they would spend, I mean, if they didn't, obviously if they didn't have kitchens, they had to buy something they could eat uh, or they'd eat things yeah. with poor nutritional value. Um, well, very often um, recent immigrants would buy food from other people in their community. You know, that was a, a sort of a quick and easy business for a recent immigrant to take up to sort of make food, you know, to sell to people in the neighborhood kind of right. under the table, not even, you know, a formal restaurant, just right. a selling to the neighbors. Um, people, men ate at the free lunch very often at the saloon. Most saloons offered a free lunch with a beer as a way of promoting the beer. Hmm. You know, these are tied saloons. So each saloon only sells one brand of beer, and then the beer um, distributor actually provides the funds for a free lunch in order to draw people into that saloon. So there is such a thing as a free lunch. (laughs) There is such a thing as a free lunch, and it it was in some places and times when there was a lot of beer distributors competing um, for, for men, there were there were great free lunches. Chicago was known for having just these remarkable spreads of free lunches, you know, free with a, a nickel beer. And the beer was always a nickel. That price remained constant for a long time. Hmm. Um, people went to delicatessens, you know, the, um, the German style of delicatessen and the Jewish style of delicatessen in New York um, and got ready-to-eat food there. And that's food that you can buy and eat without having to cook. You know, you get cold cuts or you get a salad or, and some bread and you've got a meal that you don't have to prepare. So it's almost like fast food in a way. Hmm. Uh, um, people, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, people are buying meals from push carts. You know, push carts carried a, a wide variety of snacks just kind of rolling about the streets so you could easily pick something up, you know, on the way to and from work. Um, and uh, bakery goods, as you mentioned, um, cheap cheap and nasty kind of things. Sugar uh-huh. and flour both got really inexpensive during this period uh-huh. because of things happening in the, in the sugar beet industry and in the sugar cane industry. And so pie was a really common cheap meal. And this is one that the reformers particularly hated because, you know, it was probably pretty nasty pie. It was made with, you know, lard and sugar and flour and the cheapest kind of dried fruit or maybe canned fruit a little bit later. You know, not exactly a nutritious thing. And this is at a time when pie is, is, is not considered an appropriate, you know, nutritional food. The early nutritionists hate pie. So right. well, that's, that's seen as a real kind of trash food that people are eating. Well, that was one um, thing that you mentioned about the, the change in diet of um, the immigrants and that the American diet contained so many cakes and breads, as you just explained. But it's funny because there's a, you know, there was that, uh, the old tale that the first, um, the first words of English that, you know, an immigrant worker would learn is apple pie and, co- and apple pie and coffee, right? Because mm-hmm. they could get a slice yeah. of pie. And now, yeah. it, now it makes sense, right? 
uh, had a great source talking about the food that there was push carts at Ellis Island selling food, you know, to the new immigrants as they came off. And this one, you know, journalist was writing about this food being terrible, and these poor immigrants have, you know, absolutely no choice or, you know, in the matter, and they're eating this terrible, you know, um, gritty cake, gritty, heavy, terrible cake slices that they're paying too much for. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it and... Um on the flip side of that, you said a lot of enterprising immigrants would set up um, their own little cook shops or, you know, selling food that they, that's one way for them to make money. And you mentioned that during this period, um, though a lot of the food of, of those ordinary working class people became part of the national culinary identity. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's, you know, when we look back um, now at the foods that they were eating then, uh, things like, you know, uh, Americanized ethnic food, like spaghetti and bagels, is kind of what we think of as American food now. You know, when people around the world think of American food, they think of American pizza and spaghetti and bagels and these things um, that in 1900 and 1910 were strictly ethnic, that native-born white Americans would not eat these foods or might, you know, might sort of daringly try them out, you know, as a um, as a special experience, but they wouldn't eat them every day. Right. And these foods have really become commonplace. But I think more so the idea that you can eat on the run, you know, that you don't always have to. Because for middle-class people at this time, they mostly ate at home because that was considered women's, you know, central duty was to produce food at home. And they most often had at least one servant to help them out because servant labor was pretty cheap. Um, and, you know, they socialized at home. That's where uh, civilized people Eight was in a well-appointed home dining room. And meanwhile, urban working-class people are eating on the street, and they're eating at bars, and they're eating, you know, from, from push carts, and they're later on eating at cafeterias and all these other kinds of places that sound, look much more like where Americans of all classes eat today, you know, out of the house a lot more often. Right, and then a lot of these, and, and particularly getting back to the immigrants, a lot of them, the immigrants came over as single people. They weren't married. They didn't have families. Um, so they had to live somewhere, and then boarding ho- people would take in boarders, right? And then boarding houses were born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there were um, boarding houses where you get your board, you know, you get your meals there. And there were rooming houses where you just got a room. Hmm. So all the roomers in particular were, you know, out on the streets three times a day looking for some place to have their meals. So neighborhoods that had a lot of rooming houses in it would support a lot of cheap restaurants for these, you know, mostly young working people to get their lunches and dinners. All right. I remember my um, uh, my husband's grandmother, who lived until she was 103, she had great stories to tell because she was an immigrant from Italy in 1916, right around this period. And she said mm. she had to take in her, you know, her husband was a factory worker, um, actually a manual worker mason, and she had to take in boarders to make ends yeah. meet. And she had a cold water flat. But still she would, you know, cook and take in, you know, know, 10 10 people at a time for, you know, to feed them. So it was a way to make money. It was, you know, for them. That was probably the number one way I think that married women would have made money, is by just taking in extra boarders if they could. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the iconic symbol of the working class, and that would be the lunch pail. Stay tuned. You are listening to Write It Down by The Landing.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Catherine Leonard Turner, the author of How the Other Half Ate, A History of Working Class Meals at the Turn of the Century. And, um, Catherine, I, um, oh, I wanted to talk about the lunch pail, because if there's no... One symbol, one one single symbol that we think of when we think of working class, you know, it's that that metal lunch pail that uh, appears so often in photographs and is still around today. What would have been in those lunch pails that primarily the men would take to the factories or their or their outdoor um, manual labor jobs? What you know, was there any research as, as to what was in those pails? Um, a couple sort of anecdotal stories, uh, mainly sandwiches. Um, Sometimes things like baked beans, um, hard-boiled eggs, cakes, pickles are very common. People like to have a pickle, you know, on the side. Um, uh, Mary Hinman what's, Abel was what's a changed, cookbook right? author who. Sorry, I'm sorry. I just said what's changed, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, Mary Hinman Abel wrote uh, cookbooks that were aimed at the working class to try to help them eat well on a small budget. Um, and one lunch pail menu for a winter day, she suggested, was bread, cold-boiled pork, cold-baked beans, donuts, apple pie, and cold coffee. Hmm. That's a pretty heavy, <laughs> heavy meal, but it would have, you know, would have been cold. There was no way to reheat it, obviously, on the job. Right. And this was a real departure because um, at this period of time, the largest meal was the main meal of the day was usually in the middle of the day. Right? Yeah, I think for people who could get home to eat it, you know, they would eat a lot at the meal, but... If you're working, you, you take what you can get when you can get it. Right. Um, and you mentioned um, uh, Marion Abels, who wrote the cookbook for what should be in the lunchbox or the, um, for lunches. Um, there were other people who uh, gave their two cents during this period of time, nutritionists and otherwise. Um, Ellen Richards in particular, um, you mentioned quite a bit about. Talk about her her thoughts on the middle class, on the working class, I mean. Well, she's a, a tremendously interesting person because um, she's, she's a chemist. You know, she wants to be an academic chemist, and this is a time when there isn't a lot of, there is, there's almost no career opportunities for women in, um, you know, in, in the field of science, that women were routinely sort of diverted off into something else. Um, and Ellen Richards uh, is, is one of the people who actually creates the field of home economics as a way for women to be in the sciences. And it it kind of becomes this interesting, um, you know, I don't want to say a ghetto, but home economics was designed for a way to women to, for, for women to make a serious contribution to science, but it was sort of, you know, um, refracted through their supposed identity as housekeepers. You know, that the science that women is most, are, are most uh, authorized to do is science that relates to the home, how to cook more efficiently, how to clean more efficiently, they wanted to, to rationalize housework, you know, to turn it from dull drudgery into an intellectually interesting um, modern thing, just as, you know, factories are being modernized and Taylorism is trying to make workers' movements more efficient. But, of course, home ex, you know, by the end, 
by the 20th century, it became a way to sort of shunt off all women who were interested in science. They would just sort of be sent to, you know, the home economics department to do something with that. Um, but in, in the beginning, it was very, um, really, a, a, I don't want to say a feminist, but there was a, a feminist aspect to it. Well, so Ellen Richards is a very serious person, and one of the things that she that comes through in her writings is that she wants to she wants housework to be more efficient, but she also kind of carries this older judgment of consumption mm. that consumption for its own sake is wrong, the consumption of luxuries. She really thinks that consumption should be a science, that you should eat only what you need, that you should buy only what has been proven to be useful and necessary, and everything else is a waste, you know, just as wasteful as wasting food um, or, or wasting energy in your housework. So the times when she addresses herself to the issue of working class cooking, it's a little awkward because it's this very professional mindset of here's how to make housework absolutely more efficient and it really does not take much into account the lives, the actual lives of working-class women and their actual working conditions and really anything about them. Right. It's, it's sort of presenting a very idealized, much like Taylorism, a very idealized version of how work should happen and then saying, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to do housework in this you know, more efficient way? All right. And you put it on paper and you say, well, gee, you have you know, 50 cents to spend on on." dinner and you'll spend five cents for your bread and five cents for your butter. I mean, you know, it, does, it doesn't always work that way. Speaking of buying, where did, so where did these people get their food? That is a big, big question because it's, this is a time period when uh, food retailing is changing quite a bit. Um, and some people are still buying from open public markets. Some people are buying from small groceries in their neighborhoods, which were often, again, in ethnic neighborhoods, often run by immigrants, which is appealing to immigrants because then you can, you know, find someone who speaks your language and knows how to get the things that you want. But it's a very small business. They were unstable. They failed a lot. Um, some people are, by the end of the period, they're going to more modern combination stores, which sold groceries as well as produce, as well as meat. And that, by the 1920s and 30s, has morphed into um, the modern supermarket, the self-service supermarket, begins in the 1920s, where you actually go and you know pick things off the shelf for yourself mm -hmm. and, and bring them to the cashier. Mm -hmm. That begins in the 1920s. Right. Um, but uh, you said you had uh, Tracy Deutsch on the air, and she has her book about uh, grocery shopping is just so terrific, um, talking about what a fraught uh, uh, endeavor it was for women at this time. Right. You know, it was shopping was important. It was serious business because if you did it wrong your family went hungry or you didn't get enough money for the food, um, enough food for the money that you had. All right. Well, and she used the same phrase that you mentioned, uh, housewives paradise. Yes. The supermarkets were supposed to, you know, make their life easier. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in reality, it was a way to just sort of divert their concerns. Right. Um, you had mentioned industrialization at what, how did industrialization affect the food industry and the food systems particularly of this working class people we're talking about? Oh, well, how didn't it affect yeah. it? You know, it, it's really, it's, it's changing so much in this period. I would say the biggest changes are in um, the, that meat became cheaper, as I mentioned before, um, through, the, you know, the central meat packing. The prices of food generally fell throughout the period. It didn't always keep pace with wages, but generally speaking, food became less expensive over the period because of industrialization. 
And by the end of the period, working-class people have access to um, some processed food like canned, you know, canned, the canned peaches and the canned peas. Um, they're buying Coca-Cola. They, you know, might buy a candy bar by the 1930s. Um, they're buying nationally advertised products by the end of this period. Um, that middle-class people had had been buying a little bit earlier on. Yeah, and certainly railways helped in the food distribution, uh, so they were getting more products, right? Yeah, and there was more access to fresh food, you know, in a longer season, but it, it came at a cost. Working-class hmm. people didn't always get the benefit of, you know, Georgia peaches in New York uh, early, ahead of the season because they, were, they would be priced accordingly. Yeah, well, speaking of Georgia, we talk about we – didn't really spend that much time talking about the rural <clears throat> working class, as you say, that wasn't as much literature. But then later in, as you mentioned, later in this period, um, uh, post or during the industrialization period, there were a lot of factories set up, textile, and of course, we all hear tales of the mining, you know, the mine workers' mm-hmm. uh, meals. But they would actually, well, you tell me, they'd build communities where these people would live, go and live, right, and work. They did, yeah. So that the company was very important in their lives. The company provided housing. The company, of course, set wages very often. Um, your wages were in script for the company store. So, you know, you had to take the prices that the company store offered because there wasn't any alternative nearby. Right. So um, the company and, would and pay you. The company would pay you, and then you'd give the money back to the company to buy what yes, you need to eat yes. and survive. It's a closed system. Right. <laughs> it's not exactly... Uh, free market. Yeah. And the company also, you know, made very strong and effective efforts to keep labor organizers out, both in coal and in textiles. So these are not people who have an opportunity to join a union. Right. Well, and there was a, a, an interesting uh, labor and pro-union song. I never really quite grasped the meaning of it, you know, until reading your book, it kept resonating with me. I sold my soul to the company store. I mean, it's just, exactly. wow. Yeah. It really makes a lot more sense when you think about it in, you know, in this context. And uh, it's, it's interesting because, it, uh, again, we, we are faced still with, um, as I say, some of the more poverty-stricken areas. And we say, oh, gee, if only they had education, nutritional education uh, and, you know, we, and cooking lessons, they would be able to eat more nutritionally. It's, it's a problem um, that, yeah, it's not a matter of taste. It's a matter, it's, it's a matter of a lot of things, right? Exactly, yeah, that you have to look at the whole system. It's not just whether people know how to cook. It's do they have the time and resources to cook. Um, do they have the time and resources to even eat their lunches? Are they eating on the go? Um, what's their kitchen like? Um, it's, it's, it's more than just do they know how to you know, cook a soup or not or cook lentils. All right. And, and it's interesting because you mentioned um, the la- I, I just anyone who has a chance to, an opportunity to pick up um, this book, your closing paragraph is just, uh, it's packed with so much meaning. And I, and I think with this radio, Heritage Radio Network in particular, it resonates a lot. And um, I will let people find that and read it for themselves. But if I could, I just wanted to quote that if we want to improve the food we eat, we will also have to think seriously about class. We'll have to stop focusing so intensely on individual choices and think about the structural factors that create those choices and ask whether we all have the same opportunities and means to eat well. Well, obviously, we know that that's not so and that we don't. And and also, we focus, I think, too much on, um, you know, on the individual palate and on and on and tastes when it really right. involves so many other things. 
Yeah, if you mean if you think too much about why people choose McDonald's, then you don't think about the fact that McDonald's produces this food so cheaply, you know, with low-paid workers and advertises it relentlessly to children. And, you know, there's a lot more there than people being lazy and choosing McDonald's and putting air quotes around lazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I say that. Right, right. Well, I, I thank you so much for, first of all, for, for writing the book and researching all this wonderful information and for sharing your time with us. I mean, it certainly has given me food for thought, if to use uh, <laughs> such words. Thank you so um, much for having me. Yeah, and, and I encourage people to look into this more because it, it really does make you think about what you eat, why you eat it, and how we eat. Thanks for joining me. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. The theme song for A Taste of the Past is provided by Bohemia. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.